Good afternoon. Today we have visiting us from Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Katz. Elizabeth attended Harvard and then went on to Columbia for her PhD in bio biological sciences and also acquired her MD, also from Columbia. She's been at Sloan Kettering since 2009 in the laboratory of Maria Yassine. Graduate work, which overlaps with some expertise here on the role of check to um, check to phosphorylation stability and turnover. Um, <clears throat> Elizabeth was supported by our DoD uh, Breast Cancer Fellowship during her postdoc, and also a grant from the Terry Bruder Breast Cancer Foundation. And were recently supported by K99 Pathway to Independence Award. And this has actually uh, been a controversial topic for quite some time as to why BRCA1 and 2 mutations predispose to uh, cancers both of the breast and the ovary um, and not any other tissues. So what is special about uh, breast tissue and ovarian tissue, epithelial cells, that um, predisposes them to getting cancer when there's a BRCA1 and 2 mutation? Uh, Dr. Kass does not have any financial interest to disclose with respect to this presentation. She does not intend to discuss all available or investigational use of a product or device, and she is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Dr. Kass. Um, can you hear me? Thank you very much, and um, thank you for the opportunity to present my work today. Um, I'm going to tell you about my postdoctoral research, which focuses on DNA double-strand break repair during mouse mammary gland development and its relationship to breast cancer susceptibility. So um, uh, I have uh, no disclosures, no conflicts of interest to report. And just to begin with some background information, as many people in this room know, um, numerous risk factors are linked to breast cancer, including age, reproductive history, and genetic background. In particular, uh, mutations in several genes involved in DNA repair, and specifically double-strand break repair, are, linked, are associated with increased breast cancer susceptibility. So just a little background. Um, our cells are constantly exposed to DNA damage from both exogenous and endogenous sources. A particularly cytotoxic lesion is a double-strand break shown here. And um, these double-strand breaks may result um, from endogenous damage resulting from replication or exogenous damage, including ionizing radiation. But um, their failure to repair these breaks or their misrepair could be particularly detrimental to cells. Therefore, it's very important um, that we have specific pathways for their repair. And so shown here, there are two major pathways for the repair of double-strand breaks in mammalian cells. On the left, here you see uh, canonical non-homologous end joining, often referred to as NHEJ. And basically, this just involves the joining of DNA ends with little or no homology. So this is why this is a more error-prone repair pathway. On the right, shown here, we have what I'm going to refer to throughout my talk as homology-directed repair, or HDR. It's also commonly known as homologous recombination repair. And this is considered the most precise pathway because it involves a homologous donor sequence, typically the sister chromatid shown here. And so defects in HDR can lead to genomic instability and are associated with tumor predisposition, in particular, 
breast cancer susceptibility. Um, so approximately 55 to 65% of women who have inherited mutations in BRCA1 and about 45% of women with inherited mutations in BRCA2 will develop breast cancer by the age of 70. And I just want to point out how this is significantly higher than the general population. Um, so also to keep in mind, um, BRCA1 and 2 are both very large proteins. As you can see here, uh, the BRCA1 protein is um, over 1,800 amino acids, and there are numerous functional domains. You see at the N-terminus, there's a ring domain, the C-terminus, the BRCT repeats, which are involved in binding to several repair proteins. BRCA2 is even larger, about over 3,400 amino acids. Once again, several um, functional domains that involve um, other repair proteins, including RAD51. And so we know from several studies that BRCA1 and 2 are cri play critical roles in homology-directed repair. And it's now thought that BRCA1 acts at an early step in the pathway and is involved in end resection. And I want to point out that this is important for the decision to repair by HDR, a more precise pathway, as opposed to NHEJ. While BRCA2 is involved in loading RAD51 onto single-stranded DNA. And so, um, in addition to BRCA1 and 2, mutations in other genes in the HDR pathway are associated with breast as well as other cancers, including ovarian, peritoneal, gastric, pr prostate, um, and shown here is some data from ovarian cancers. You can see germline mutations in several genes, including RAD51 paralogs, are associated but at lower frequencies. And more recently, um, studies have shown even uh, HDR mutation signatures in different cancers. So I'm particularly interested in trying to understand why the mammary gland is particularly predisposed to tumor genesis with mutation of HDR factors. And so um, a few possibilities to consider are, is there a greater reliance on HDR such that mammary epithelium may be more sensitive to deficiency in HDR genes? Or does mammary tissue have more DNA damage to repair as a result of hormonally induced damage during cycles of pregnancy, lactation, and involution? So, I want um, everyone to kind of keep in mind that the mammary gland is quite different and is unusual compared to other tissues because of the development that occurs after birth. So at birth, you just have this rudimentary structure here, which it's not until during puberty that in response to ovarian hormone stimulation, you have the filling of the mammary fat pad shown here. And then during cycles of pregnancy, lactation, involution, you have alveolar expansion during pregnancy milk production during lactation, and then regression during involution, which returns the gland to its normal resting state, although gene expression studies have shown that at the um, gene level, there actually are uh, significant differences between the Paris or virgin gland. Also, during each estrous cycle, there, are, um, there is expansion of cells followed by regression. So the mammary gland is a very dynamic tissue. And many questions remain about how DNA repair is impacted by these developmental changes. Um, in order to study this, we need a proper system. So for my postdoctoral work, I've been taking advantage of a reporter <coughs> developed in my mentor's lab several years ago. Uh, 
The DRGFP, or direct repeat GFP reporter, has become a commonly used assay for looking at HDR in mammalian cells. And so it consists of two mutated GFP genes. You have SCEGFP, which contains the 18 base pair recognition site for the IC1 endonuclease, and the truncated IGFP. Expression of this endonuclease in cells with the reporter will result in a site-specific double-strand break, which when repaired by HDR using IGFP as template would result in functional GFP expression, and then of course cells can be scored by flow cytometry. Now I want to point out, I'm going to talk about this later, this induced double-strand break could be repaired by another pathway, such as NHEJ, which would result in loss of the IC1 site, but you would not have a GFP-positive cell. And I'll get into that more later. So more recently, this reporter was introduced into mice in order to study HDR in primary cells. And why are we interested in studying in primary cells? Well, much of the data until then, um, studies had been performed in immortalized ES cells or transformed cell lines, so we're interested in seeing um, what is repair just in, in, in normal cells. And what we found, and this was in transient transfection-based assays, where the IC1, um, an IC1 expression plasmid was transfected into these primary um, virgin mammary epithelial cells, we see um, levels of H HDR that were similar um, across different primary cell types, mammary cells, ear fibroblasts, and, and a few other cell types as well. But um, Towards the goal of actually measuring HDR in tissue, it was important to have IC1 expression in the animal. So for this, I generated a line of um, tetracycline-inducible IC1 mice. Uh, these mice were crossed with the transactivator line, which would allow for expression of IC1 in multiple tissue types. And this was important to us because I wanted to be able to compare um, HDR in mammary tissue to other tissues, so I didn't want to use a mammary-specific promoter, which could also potentially have confounding effects because of um, hormonal responsiveness. So these um, docs-inducible IC1 mice were then crossed with our DRGFP line, um, creating a three-transgene model for um, analyzing HDR in mouse tissues. And what I want to show you first is how um, IC1 expression in cells from these mice is very tightly controlled. In the absence of doxycycline, we do not see any IC1. And here we're showing increasing um, uh, doxycycline. You see increasing IC1 expression. This is adding dox to primary cells. And this correlates with high levels of HDR shown here. And just to show you that this is about tenfold higher than what we saw by transient transfection experiments which really speaks to the efficiency of this system. Um, of course, my goal is to be able to look in tissues, and for that, we need to administer doxycycline to the mice. And what I have chosen to do is to use uh, doxycycline in drinking water. So after um, approximately, I typically use a nine-day course of doxycycline in drinking water. You can see in the pubertal mammary gland, in the absence of dox, we do not see any IC1 expression but we see good expression um, after dox treatment, and similarly in the pregnant gland shown here. Importantly, this correlates with HDR shown by um, GFP-positive cells. So on top in the pubertal gland, um, the red is staining for cytokeratin-14, which is a basal marker, and you see it's outlining the duct, those cells. Um, on the bottom, actually, the red is staining for cytokeratin-8, which is a luminal marker, and I'm going to get back to this later, but I just want to show you how the GFP-positive cells are dispersed throughout the gland. 
Now, this gives us a qualitative view of where the GFP-positive cells are. I'm also very interested in being able to quantify. For that, I've chosen to take uh, a flow cytometry-based approach. So um, the tissues are harvested, and instead of staining for immunofluorescence, they're just dissociated uh, by mechanical and enzyme di digestion immediately uh, into single cells. And so we see rather large amounts of GFP-positive cells. So these numbers may seem sort of arbitrary. We see 6% here during puberty and about 10% during pregnancy. The question becomes, how do we compare these numbers? What do they mean to each other? So in order to determine the contribution of HDR to overall repair, um, I'm using a PCR-based site loss assay, going back to what I was telling you uh, originally. So I can look at repair across the break site. Basically, at the time of flow cytometry, genomic DNA is harvested from cells, and then um, using specific primers, uh, a PCR product is amplified, and this product can then be cut in vitro with IC1. So if in the cell or tissue there was no I IC1, the entire product should be able to be cut in vitro, shown here, so you only get cleaved product. Now, if in the cell or tissue there was some amount of cleavage, we get the ratio of what cannot be cut by IC1 in vitro, the uncleaved product, to total. This gives us a measurement of overall repair. And specifically, I'm using primers which are only going to be detecting HDR and NHEJ events. So this is giving us overall repair as in HDR and NHEJ. So then we can see that we can um, look at the contribution of HDR as the percent HDR is the percent of GFP-positive cells, or HDR events, divided by site loss, or total repair. And looking back at the GFP measurements that I showed you, taking into account the site loss, we actually see that these numbers relate to approximately 34 to 40% HDR, which um, is actually quite high for what we expected. Um, up to now, uh, HDR is known to be a precise pathway, but it was not necessarily thought to be um, a major pathway in adult cells because, of course, um, the cells need to be in S and G2 phase of the cell cycle. So um, next, because we have this mouse model, we can actually begin to interrogate repair in specific cell populations. So the mammary gland has two main type of epithelial cells. As I mentioned, you have the basal or the myoepithelial cells um, outside the duct, and inside you have the luminal cells lining the lumen. And besides using cytokeratin markers, we can separate populations by flow cytometry based on some established um, cell surface markers shown here. This is the luminal population. This is the basal population. And approximately the top 5% staining of the basal population are a putative stem cell population. So why is this important? Because in trying to understand why certain cells may be predisposed to tumor genesis, it's important to understand how repair might be compromised in certain cell types that could con conceivably be cell of origin for breast cancers. So taking this into account and, so and sorting the cells by populations, as you can see, again, looking at GFP-positive cells and using site loss to look at overall repair, we see high HDR, again, in both the luminal and basal populations during puberty and during pregnancy. But in both cases, it's actually slightly but significantly higher in the luminal population, which may be interesting for different reasons. During puberty, this is considered the more um, proliferative cells. 
And during pregnancy, these are, um, this population would include the alveolar cells, which are driving um, expansion. What was really interesting is that we observed the highest percentage of GFP-positive cells in this putative stem cell population during puberty. And while stem cells may sometimes be thought of as a kind of a quiescent population, it is thought that stem cells are driving the filling of the mammary fat pad during puberty. And you can imagine it would be particularly important for stem cells to have a precise repair pathways. So the next question to address was how does HDR in mammary tissue compare to other tissues, and specifically to other proliferative tissues? And for this comparison, I chose to look at small intestine, epithel uh, small intestine epithelium, another epithelial tissue, which we know is rapidly proliferating. We can see similar levels of um, IC1 staining shown here, and again, um, similarly dispersed GFP-positive cells. And we saw um, a good amount of, of uh, HDR. This is approximately 25% HDR, which I'm pointing out is significantly less than what we observed in um, the pubertal or pregnant gland. So what I've shown you thus far is that HDR is, re is really robust in mammary tissue during the proliferative stages of mammary gland development. Um, I've shown you that it varies um, within different mammary epithelial cell subtypes and that the highest percentage of GFP-positive cells in the mammary gland was in this putative stem cell fraction. So I think that um, this also shows us that this mouse model can be very useful for kind of understanding repair in tissues. So the next um, question that I wanted to address, especially having this in vivo system, was how does mutation of a canonical repair protein, and I'm, I'm looking at BRCA2, affect HDR in the mammary gland? So we know from several, um, from many cell-based studies that BRCA2 plays a critical role in HDR. Also, as many people in the room might know, that um, complete disruption of BRCA2 in mice leads to embryonic lethality. So for these experiments, I've been using a hypermorph mutant. Um, it was important to me not to use a conditional allele so that I could compare HDR and mammary tissue to other tissue types. So this hypermorph um, was published several years ago. These mice are uh, Delta 27 mutants. They have a mutation um, at the far C terminus, so they lack a RAD51 binding site. Now, RAD51 does bind the BRC repeats, but just lacking this site in cells that was shown that they have compromised HDR. And in mammary cells, we see um, significant genomic instability, uh, chromatid breaks and fragments. So first, um, I wanted to make sure that mammary development uh, was normal in the mutants. And as you can see here, this is carmine alum staining comparing mutant to heterozygous litter mates. And you have normal filling of the mammary fat pad during puberty and normal alveolar expansion during pregnancy. Similarly, we see um, similar levels of cell proliferation as measured by KS67 staining. And we also saw um, similar uh, EDU staining. With that in mind, we do see an approximately two-fold reduction in HDR shown here. This is normalized to wild type, both in the pubertal gland and pregnant gland. Um, of note, you might notice that um, the heterozygous animals do not show any uh, repair defect. So again, going back to this uh, cell of origin question for breast cancer, it was particularly important to me to understand 
how mutation of BRCA2 would affect HDR in the specific lineages. So first I wanted to see what the composition of um, these, if there was similar just composition of the mammary lineages comparing mutant to het. And as you can see here, looks fairly normal. And when we look at the luminal and basal populations, we see a similar approximately two-fold reduction shown here. And this is interesting because this would indicate um, that neither the luminal population nor the basal population would have a particular um, HDR defect in the context of BRCA2 mutation, um, which if, if anyone um, knows about a BRCA2 breast cancer, to be um, heterogeneous in nature, so this might make sense that these cells could be um, uh, equally compromised. Also, you see, when we look at the stem cell population, where we had this very large number of GFP-positive cells. Now, I can't show you the percent HDR, and I, I didn't mention this earlier. Because the, the, the population is so small, um, it's very difficult to do that PCR-based site. So this is just looking at the percent of GFP-positive cells. We see an approximately two- to three-fold reduction. But you can imagine that if um, a stem cell, which, uses, which seems to utilize the HDR pathway a lot, has a defect uh, related to BRCA2 mutation, it would be passed on equally to luminal or basal daughter cells, which could also account for some of this um, heterogeneity. So the next question was, how does mutation of BRCA2 affect HDR in other tissues? Meaning, is there a tissue-specific or mammary-specific defect? Well, again, we chose to look at other proliferative tissues, specifically the intestine and also uh, a, a different type of tissue, uh, hematologic bone marrow. And as you can see, we see this similar 2 or 2.5-fold reduction in HDR. So there does not appear to be a mammary-specific defect associated with this BRCA2 mutation. So what I've shown you is that the BRCA2 delta 27 mutation leads to HDR defects in mammary epithelium during puberty and pregnancy. But importantly, there appears to be a similar dependence on BRCA2 in other proliferative tissues. And we see a similar effect um, in different mammary epithelial cell lineages. So what this um, makes me think, in terms of um, some future directions, as I'm going to discuss later, is that it would appear that the greater reliance on HDR in the proliferating mammary gland may increase its susceptibility to tumorigenesis. So as opposed to there being a tissue-specific defect, it's the idea that if the mammary gland uh, is utilizing this precise repair pathway more than other tissues, you could see that a mutation in a key player in this pathway could have a more detrimental effect there. Um, so now I'm going to just transition a little bit and talk about um, some more data that's a little more preliminary for me. Um, in the beginning, I showed you that um, the slide just showing how BRCA1 and 2 act at different stages of the HDR pathway. And so with this in mind, I'm also interested in understanding how mutation of BRCA1 affects HDR in mammary cells. Once again, uh, BRCA1 mouse mutants are embryonic lethal when there's complete disruption. So for these experiments, I'm utilizing, again, hypomorphic alleles. In this case, the BRCA1 S1598F allele contains a single point mutation in the first BRCT repeat. And this abrogates binding to other repair proteins. And this mimics a mutation found uh, in breast cancer patient 1655F. 
The second allele, both of these were generated in the lab of our collaborator, Thomas Ludwig, at Ohio State. The second um, allele, the BRCA1TR, um, lacks the entire C-terminus, um, so lacking both BRCT repeats. And in terms of um, patients, uh, numerous uh, truncation mutations or frame shift mutations have, are found in breast cancer patients with the BRCA1 mutations. So these are relevant for looking at the role of BRCA1 specifically in repair in the mammary gland. And um, these experiments are now done um, what I call ex vivo by adding doxycycline to primary cells at passage one. And we see about a threefold reduction in HDR in cells from the S1590F mutant. These are mammary epithelial cells. But once again, we see a similar defect in ear fibroblasts. So similar to what we saw with BRCA2, um, this is um, in primary cells, but we're not seeing a mammary cell-specific defect. So um, I'm just going to um, make a small tangent to discuss um, the role of 53BP1. As uh, some people in the room may know, that BRCA1, um, several papers have shown over the last uh, five to seven years, has an antagonistic relationship with 53BP1. While BRCA1 is important in the decision to repair via HDR and has a role in end resection, it's thought that 53BP1 promotes um, non-homologous end joining uh, by its involvement in end protection. So um, some groups um, showed originally in 2010 that if you had mutation of BRCA1, um, loss of 53BP1 actually rescued these mice. So we specifically wanted to see how um, mutation of both BRCA1 and 53BP1 affected HDR in, in mammary cells. And of course, we can actually quantify this in this system. So first, what we found was um, the absence of 53BP1 shown here, the single mutant, we actually see an increase in HDR, as might be expected for something that would be a pro-NHEJ factor. So if it's gone, we see more HDR. So in the single BRCA1 mutant, we have the, the, the HDR defect that is completely rescued to even above um, biotype levels in the double mutant. So this supports what was previously published. Going a step further and taking advantage of this system to really see small differences in DNA repair, we found it quite interesting that we actually saw a heterozygous effect that um, we see some haploinsufficiency at the protein level, and this correlates with an approximately 1.5-fold increase in HDR in cells that are mutant for BRCA1 and heterozygous for 53BP1. Um, this does not appear to be mammary-specific, but why this might be important, when we think about um, resistance mechanisms, um, some studies have shown that in BRCA1 tumors, one mechanism for um, drug resistance may be changes in expression level of 53BP1. And this is showing it's not necessarily an all or nothing, that it could be modulating levels could have kind of profound effects. So next, um, this, I had a second BRCA1 allele that I've been looking at. And then you can see here, we see a similar approximately two-fold reduction HDR again in mammary cells and ear fibroblasts. But what's really interesting about this allele is we actually see a very small but statistically significant decrease um, in HDR in cells from, these are mammary cells from the heterozygous mice. Previously, um, there aren't a lot of studies showing a heterozygous effect in uh, BRCA1 or BRCA2. And this has always been kind of um, a conundrum in the field because, of course, you know, um, 
women that have mutations in BRCA1 or 2 are carriers. They, they have monoallelic mutations. So what events occur leading to breast cancer? And one thought, which has never really been shown, is um, th there have been a few studies. But one idea has been that maybe um, these women have low levels of genomic instability. And here, we are seeing this. Again, it would be a very low level. This is about a 20% reduction in HDR, because this is a sensitive system for picking up this difference. But it poses an interesting question. Could this possibly you know, be um, adding to accumulating risk? So um, next, and this is very preliminary, I've started to look in vivo uh, with, with animals with the BRCA1-TR mutation. And you can see um, there's a significant error bar right here, but we are seeing not only the same kind of difference in vivo, this twofold reduction, but a small um, difference also uh, in the head, shown here. However, we do see a small difference as well in bone marrow. So these are experiments that I'm continuing right now. Also. BRCA1 breast cancers are a little um, are, are different uh, at the pathology level than BRCA2. BRCA2 breast cancers uh, tend to be more heterogeneous, as I mentioned, but BRCA1 are uh, more basal-like breast cancers. And there were some really interesting papers that came out over the last five years suggesting that the cell of origin may actually be an aberrant luminal progenitor, despite the pathology being a basal-like cancer. So with that in mind, and I'm looking right now at um, HDR specifically in um, these progenitor populations to really see if we could see you know, a small difference there might, that might start to explain why um, an aberrant luminal progenitor could be the cell of origin. So just to, just to um, finish up this part, um, the BRCA1 data, I've shown you that BRCA1 C-terminal mutations reduce HDR similarly in mammary cells and other cell types. Um, I showed you that uh, mammary cells from the TR het mice show a small HDR reduction, which may um, uh, indicate a low levels of um, genomic instability. And um, I've also shown you that I see a similar uh, HDR reduction in mammary tissue from, uh, from BRCA TR mutant mice in uh, mammary tissue from pubertal animals, as in bone marrow. And so. Now, kind of switching gears, I'd like to tell you a little bit about where I intend to go from here. So um, initially, I, I showed you that there were kind of two ideas. Uh, why is the mammary gland particularly predisposed to tumor genesis with mutation of HDR factors? And I hope I've shown you that my results suggest a greater reliance on HDR, and that is a reason why the mammary gland may be more sensitive to deficiency in, in, in HDR genes. But the second point um, I do not think is necessarily independent. And that question um, is still out there. Does mammary tissue have more DNA damage to repair as a result of hormonally induced changes during puberty and during these cycles of pregnancy, lactation, and involution? And this is just some preliminary experiments where um, I gave mice uh, whole body irradiation and looked at the kinetics of H2AX phosphorylation, which is a marker for um, double strand break repair. And you can see two important uh, differences here. These are um, virgin or pregnant littermates. In the virgin animal, you see the kinetics are completely different. You see H2AX phosphorylation um, increases about three and five hours after IR. In the pregnant animal, you actually see a more robust response right away at about one hour that dissipates. But possibly the most interesting thing 
um, that I found was that we have this low level of DNA damage in the unirradiated mammary tissue, not shown here, which could perhaps um, be occurring as a result of these hormonally induced changes. So with this in mind, um, my, my future plans are sort of divided into two, um, two major um, aims, one continuing the focus on mammary gland development, and the second I'm going to talk about um, tumor genesis. So the overall goal for the first is to really understand the relationship between hormone exposure, DNA damage, double-strand break repair, and again, the tissue specificity of these BRCA-associated cancers. And to do so, I think, um, what I want to do first is um, to utilize um, my ability to separate you know, the, the mammary cells into the separate populations to really examine the DNA damage load in these subpopulations to see if during puberty or during pregnancy, if specifically in the basal cells or luminal cells, is there more damage as a result, again, of these hormonally induced changes. With that in mind, and similarly, um, because we see these higher levels of repair at these stages, the question is, could this actually be mimicked by exogenous hormone exposure? Um, different concentrations of estrogen or progesterone. Do we see um, similar changes in terms of DNA damage response and HDR? And um, taking this a step further, again, looking at the populations, the idea is that we can separate cells not only into populations, but we can also separate um, sort of HDR-proficient cells based on, again, the GFP fluorescence, and do some gene expression analysis to look at differences in terms of the up and down regulation of genes, specifically in wild-type BRCA1, BRCA2, mutant, or heterozygous mice. And um, another um, really uh, interesting um, avenue of exploration, I think, is to look for potentially the effects of other um, uh, heterozygous mutations, so monoallelic mutations in BRCA1, like the truncation mutation I saw going through a database and actually you know, using CRISPR to make uh, these mutations, and it'll be a lot easier if they're, they're monoallelic, in the existing uh, reporter mouse system and looking for um, changes in DNA repair. So that is sort of where I see the development um, questions going, and I think there, there, there is a lot still to be done and a lot of open questions, and I think some of the, the data that I've shown you has just um, posed more questions. But I also want to point out how this system can really be used also to look at repair, not only in other tissues, we, it's not you know, specific to the mammary gland, but um, for my interest to actually look at repair um, during mammary tumor genesis. And so I, I may have mentioned that the BRCA1 and 2 mutants, um, they t the, the, the hypomorphs, they, they will get mammary tumors, but with very long latency. Um, conditional um, knockouts also similarly have quite long tumor latency. So for these experiments, at least first, what I'd like to do is look at double-strand break repair in the setting of a, a single oncogene model and specifically, I'd like to use this polyoma, uh, PYMT mouse model. Um, these mice um, on an FVB background get tumors quite quickly, and they have very discrete stages of tumor progression, beginning with hyperplasia through um, early and late carcinoma. You see this up to about four weeks. You can see carcinomas by eight weeks in these mice. And the idea is to actually be able to measure um, repair during tumor progression, so at these different stages, and to again be able to separate cells 
um, using the GFP as a marker, and looking at changes in gene expression that could identify genes that are involved in tumor progression. Um, a, a longer um, a longer term goal is also is importantly to look at the DNA um, repair response to therapy. And this would first be done ex vivo by taking tumor cultures or explants, growing them in a dish, adding drugs in the dish, and looking at repair readout and looking for changes in repair um, in response to different drugs, different concentrations, different time courses. But ultimately, the goal would be actually um, to look at repair in vivo. And for this, my idea is to take an orthotopic transplantation approach, is you can grow a tumor, separate it into multiple tumor slices that could be implanted into a mammary fat pad, and these mice could receive uh, different treatments. And we actually look for changes in terms of the GFP, um, using GFP as a marker for changes in repair proficiency. And once again, um, cells can be sorted, and we can identify um, potentially even biomarkers that could be targets for, for additional studies later, so to identify genetic changes associated with tumor progression and potential biomarkers of therapy resistance. And I think this is, again, particularly important because most standard chemotherapeutics are, of course, DNA-damaging agents, but we also have targeted therapies today, such as PARP inhibitors, that specifically are targeting the HR pathway. So with that in mind, um, I just want to conclude by acknowledging my mentor, Maria Jason, my co-advisor, uh, Mary Ellen Moynihan, the Jason Lab, my funding. Thank you. That's true. Their, their disease um, spectra are very different. Um, and I mean, in terms of the HDR pathway, they do have distinct functions that BRCA1 is more involved in this early step, this end resection step, which is more kind of the decision to repair via HDR. BRCA2, I would say, is more of a canonical HDR factor. It's involved in loading RAD51 onto single-strand DNA. But it's always kind of been an interesting question. And in fact, recently, um, as um, the emergence of mutation signatures associated with um, uh, HR deficiencies, they actually are lumping together kind of BRCA1 and BRCA2. And it, it's opened up a question in the field because, as you're saying, that um, there are significant differences. Uh, BRCA1, is, besides breast, is, is linked to ovarian cancer, a few other cancers. BRCA2 has a wider spectrum um, of cancer types. I, I think it's really an open question as to what the difference is. And you know, being able to look in vivo and maybe to be able to look at these cell populations to actually see, for instance, if HDR is compromised in a luminal progenitor, if there's something different specific to a population for BRCA1 that we didn't see for BRCA2, I think that begins to maybe address a little bit tissue-specific differences even between those two proteins. I was just wondering if this might be sort of a timing effect where if HDR is not working as effectively, you get NHEJ coming in. And so can you talk about that? And, and maybe part of the specificity has to do with what parts of NHEJ are 
becoming involved. I mean, that's true also. And especially since it's known that, for instance, cells are, are in G1 for longer than other stages of the cell cycle, and the predominant repair pathway for sure during G1 is NHEJ. So I think that a, a lot remains to be known, though, about you know, when you have HDR compromised, the idea would be um, on, in a simplistic model that then you know, NHEJ would compensate or, or vice versa. What I've done, though, is I've a little bit oversimplified because there are these other smaller repair pathways that several new studies have shown may have um, important differences, such as there's an alternative NHEJ pathway that involves microhomology-mediated repair. So I think that there's a balance that also will involve these other smaller pathways. Um, I'm actually interested because newer papers have shown that this microhomology uh, mediated end joining may play a role when, when for instance, uh, HDR is compromised. Um, I can look at that using this system instead. It, it's a little uh, more complicated because I actually will have to sequence junctions to look for these small changes. But I do think that there is a balancing act and there's other, other players there that um, I might not be in including because they're not necessarily thought to be major players, but they could obviously be involved and maybe differently in different tissues or cells. Your, your, your model system, you have very efficient for your GFP production, but it doesn't demand uh, homologs air to get to HDR, right? So how would, would that influence the outcome if you made your system so that you require chromosome pairing so that's been a long-standing question because the DRGFP assay as a cell-based assay has been around for um, nearly 20 years at this point. In terms of just simple experiments that have been done, it's, it's understood what its limitations are. It's thought to be a fairly accurate measurement of you know, how much uh, HDR a particular cell type is doing, but it is true that your um, so you, you, you have, you're supplying the template as part of the reporter. It's not, um, I think it would be quite complicated. I mean, you can, you know, bring in like a, a donor plasmid, are you thinking, as, as, as a measurement? I haven't done those measurements. It's, a, it's an idea, though, to see if there's any um, significant difference. I think it's interesting that you see HDR in these primitive cell types that maybe are more quiescent. I, I just don't understand it. How often are double-strand breaks occurring in normal quiescent cells as compared with those maybe treated by a cytotoxic agent? And how so, does this sort of fit into the development of resistance by primitive cells and uh, the elaboration of, say, a recurrent tumor from them? No, that's a good question. And so one of the things is that even though stem cells are thought to be quiescent, during puberty, it's been shown by other groups that these stem cells are sort of activated and they're actually driving the expansion by, you know, um, and, and in theory, they can even be, be traced by using GFP as, as, a, as a lineage marker. Um, I think that, it, you know, it's hard to, to say how this would compare to other tissues that, you know, where we think of stem cells as being more quiescent, but... Um, I think it's kind of, it's sort of open. Would you expect a, a recurrent uh, breast tumor to be 100% GFP positive in your system? If it no, no. 
for sure, no. I think that um, you, would, you would see changes and maybe you would see kind of a focal area of um, where cells that have now become HDR proficient are essentially, you know, uh, together. And that in itself could be, you know, identifying. But no, for sure they wouldn't all. And I'm just not sure that, you know, I'm think, I'm, I've been showing you the stem cell data is normal development. Cancer stem cells are actually different. And, you know, I haven't specifically looked at HDR, let's say, in cancer stem cells in the breast. That's a, another question. So related to that, you were intrigued by the difference in gamma rays to AX in the pregnant versus the, uh, the virgin. What's the difference in the of the hormones between those two Is it much higher in the pregnant and the gamma rate to X is simply because it's a higher pregnant? So it can be, and, and, and that, that is kind of a chicken and the egg question because um, is it purely just because of proliferation um, or is it because of more replication induced stress as a result of more proliferation? So I think it actually opens up other questions to look at. Because replication-induced stress, you know, not only uh, double-strand breaks being caused, let's say, by breakdown of estrogen metabolism, um, I think that, you know, whether it is purely proliferation or, again, stressors of... I think I'm saying the same thing. But if there's no proliferation, if there's no replication, you won't have replicated stress. So if the virgin has no replication, you wouldn't have any basal Okay, Th that can be true, but that in and of itself um, makes the pregnancy um, scenario different, and so you are having the accumulation of damage there, even if it's just due to more proliferation. What does that mean over a lifetime of an animal or over um, several pregnancies? Or even um, in terms of like a lineage tracing question, do these cells survive through involution? Because I'm actually looking at pregnancy as opposed to parity. So are, you know, cells that undergo damage, are they preferentially maintained or lost in a wild-type setting or in a mutant setting? It could be actually a quite, quite interesting question. Do you ever be able to follow, how would you follow that? The, one, the cell with gamma rate 2 x is the one that survives or dies in the next? That would be much harder to do. With the GFP as a label, maybe a cell that undergoes repair could be traced because using the fluorescent label. And I've started to do that to look through um, subsequent pregnancies and look through um, you know, multiple involutions. But yeah, for H2X, it would be a little more difficult to do. Okay.